are now listening to Digital Doorways, where our audience learns from our expert guests as we explore their experiences with branding, transformation, and change. Unlock the digital doorways and embark on a journey of knowledge and growth. Now here is our host, Blue Text founder, Jason Siegel. Welcome to another episode of Digital Doorways. I'm your host, Jason Siegel, founder of Blue Text, and today we're joined by a true luminary in the realm of UI and UX design. Kevin Goldman, with an illustrious career, Kevin has left an indelible mark on the cybersecurity landscape. Currently serving as the Chief Experience Officer at Trusona, a trailblazer in passwordless solutions, his expertise has significantly impacted major institutions, including Bank of America, the Government of Australia, and numerous universities. Kevin is a renowned product design executive in Phoenix, differentiating growth stage cybersecurity firms with his human-centered design approach. In the ever-evolving world of cybersecurity and identity protection, Kevin stands as a titan, blending innovation with a deep understanding of human experience. As we explore the intersection of design, technology, and security, Kevin's insights promise to unravel the dynamics of crafting user-centric solutions in the digital age. Get ready for a fascinating journey into the mind of Kevin Goldman, a leader shaping the future of experiential design. Thanks for joining us on Digital Doorways, Kevin. Hey, thank you for having me, Jason. Awesome. So let's jump right into it. Um, you know, you're a master designer, a designer that in our agency, we have what's called the Kevin Goldman rule, or what would Kevin Goldman do? So uh, you've had a huge impact on my uh, creative powerhouse team. And uh, we thank you for that. Uh, how do you ensure that human-centered design principles are at the core of your approach when differentiating cybersecurity products? Oh, boy, where to start? You know, I, sh- I should start. I'll back up a little bit. Thank you for the for the, the intro there. Um, it has been wonderful working with your team in the past, too. Um, you know, how do you bring a human-centered design into cybersecurity? It really starts with the team and the culture. So you can, you can hire somebody with specific expertise in design, user-centered design, and you can hire a junior person or you can hire a very senior person. For a lot of cybersecurity firms, um, whether they're vendors or whether you're in-house um, at a brand, that's kind of the big question. If you think oh, you know what, I think we need some more user-centered design within our cybersecurity work. And you haven't hired these people in, that first big question is, well, do you start small or do you start with the design leader? I, You know, you can start either way, but I really think it's great to bring in a leader that understands that the best way to imbue cybersecurity products with the humorous set of the approach is by getting the rest of the team thinking about the user in ways they maybe haven't before. The rest of the team being the engineering team, the product management team, the customer success team, even the sales team. And having um, a great design leader is going to know how to bring that to the culture. So as a design leader, you're tackling 
designing products in a hyper saturated marketplace. And often when I talk to many cybersecurity companies, they often say, we're not really proud of our product interface design. We know it could be so much better, but we've been focused on, you know, what's going on behind the scenes versus getting that UX right. So in a crowded cybersecurity landscape, how do you approach product design to ensure the solutions visually stand out as really compelling, as well as meets the user's needs effectively? Great question. So in, I would say cybersecurity and healthcare are kind of laggards to really understanding the value of human-centered design and, and great um, approaches to um, usability. So a company in cybersecurity, just putting the investment into design itself is absolutely going to raise the bar. The bar is just low in cybersecurity and in healthcare. So in terms of standing out, you're going to stand out by making that investment. Now, that's a real simple answer, but I will also say that if you, if you have the right design leadership and you start to build some design maturity within your organization, um, design will then be understood as deeper than just what something looks like or feels like or the interface. You know, design will be in partnership more with product management and will be thinking more about innovation. You know, we'll be thinking more about um, user needs, not just usability. Excellent. And, you know, you've led product design at a lot of leading cybersecurity companies. When you're dealing with the your coworkers in the C-suite, what are some of the metrics or indicators that you prioritize when assessing, is this UX for our cybersecurity product, is, this, um, is it working? Like, how do you try to make it measurable? Is it uh, how quick they're in and out of doing a specific task? Or uh, are you constantly polling for satisfied users? What are the metrics or indicators that you usually uh, agree upon with others in the C-suite? Absolutely. It, it The measurements of design need to be the same measurements that the business already uses. And so, yes, within, within a design sprint or within small chunks of design work, there may be measurements that only the design team sees. But when we start to look at programs and the efficacy of major bundles of functionality or even new products, we have to look at the same uh, measurements that the C-suite is already looking at. It's cost, it's headcount, it's time to value. It's, it's all the measures that, that those folks are already talking about. You know, in this space, I've been in, involved in authentication, identity, digital identity and authentication for so long. Some of the real specific measurements um, that companies look at in that space um, around authentication is just first try sign-in success. So as you go to sign in, um, are you successful with that task the very first time you try? And for most companies, let's say 
an e-commerce company, you know, or, or most companies, when they're signing in with a username and password, that success rate is around 50%, that first try sign-in success rate. And it's fascinating that that measurement, a first try sign-in success rate, that is a high-level metric for, um, you know, uh, divisions that own e-commerce websites and that sort of thing. So um, use the metrics that they're already they're already reporting on. I'll mention one more though, because we could spend a whole podcast just on this one topic of design metrics. I do a lot of work with the Fido Alliance, who creates an industry organization, global industry or uh, organization that creates the specifications for modern authentication, for pass keys, for digital identity. And one of the programs that we're running there, we, you know, we're looking at um, those big picture business metrics, hours to implement, human hours, um, headcount needed to implement, um, you know, the cost to deploy a certain solution or to deploy support for a certain specification. They're the same measurements that um, companies should already be measuring. Excellent. You know, as I'm over over the last ten years, I've worked with a lot of cybersecurity companies, and trends are changing. And lately, I'm hearing about product led growth a lot, where it's about sort of getting your claws into an organization and then allowing them to unlock more and more features and functionality. Pricing models are now based on consumption versus by the seat. And the game is constantly changing in the trends of sort of the business of selling and monetizing cybersecurity products. How do the evolving cybersecurity trends influence design choices you make for products? And how do you stay ahead of these trends? Um, You know, a lot of my listeners want to learn from what inspires uh, great market leaders like yourself. So any insights there would be great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oftentimes it's said um, that product is the new marketing mm-hmm. and customer service is the new sales, you know? And so I, I've i seen this a, a bit in my career in the last maybe eight years where that's starting to be understood more um, in the cybersecurity space. Um. Whereas in other industries, it's a given um, that you're going to have, let's say, a freemium model or something where the product is available and you can use it, um, perhaps limited features, but the product is what should drive growth and the product is what should deliver value, deliver value quickly. And it's less about seeing ads on LinkedIn, being bombarded with uh with email outreaches and more just being able to use the product, hopefully find value. And then as you engage with the product and perhaps gauge with technical support or other forms of support, um, then questions of selling come into mind. But I have definitely seen that. I hope, I hope that just continues in cybersecurity as opposed to very um, 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 opaque uh, buying processes with cybersecurity products where uh, it's an enterprise sale before you can even take a glimpse at the software itself. 
Yeah, and another tug of war that I always deal with, um, very similar to what you're talking about, is the sales and marketing people trying to capture more and more fields of information where marketers are saying, mm-hmm. if we ask for so much, we're creating too much friction and you're not mm-hmm. going to get the leads. Mm-hmm. And then the salespeople are like, if you don't give me 15 points of info, that's a wood lead and I'm not following up on it. So it's it's really this tug of war and it's this balancing act. Now yeah. in your role, you have to balance security and UX usability or user friendliness. So what challenges do you encounter when balancing both robust security features and measures while also maintaining a hyper user friendly user experience? Mm. Yeah. Okay. So that's a little hard to unwind, but I guess I'll go say it this way. Um, Design can't be applied as a, as a bolt on to a security product. So what that means is if it's going to be, if design is going to be more than a, a bolted on layer, you know, sauce on top of the main course, um, then the design team really needs to understand the technology, really needs to understand the engineering, really needs to understand the, the business context for the software that's being used. Design needs to be able to apply so much more than just what something looks and feels like. Now, the, there's a there's a funny balance there though because if an organization is truly committed to making their cybersecurity products easier to use, um, faster time to value, quicker to deploy, etc., then it needs to be a give and take. The security te- the security folks, the engineers also need to learn about the human side of the screen. They need to learn from the designers. They need to be able to speak some of that design language. They need to be open to ideas around personas and journey maps and um, longitudinal user experience research. I'm kind of holding my hands up, you know, in the air, and I'm showing like this balance between these two these two forces. That's what needs to happen um operationally and in terms of the culture inside of an organization to truly have the most impact from design i hope that's clear jason but it, no, it's, it's, it's really important. clear and and you know you talked a bunch about the product needs to have good context of the industry that it's going to be working inside of and one of the things that you've been doing really well is designing for a wide variety of audiences using the technology that you're a design leader around. So given a lot of the broad client base that you're often designing products for, and that could span, you know, powerhouse industries like banking, government, major universities, how do you tailor the design to meet the varied needs of each of those specific user groups? Absolutely. So Maybe the simple way to answer this is with an analogy or, um, uh, I mean, overarching, the concept's called universal design. 
So you can, you can look that up. Listeners, I recommend you just look up that concept. And it's, it's a very simple concept. But even outside of software and technology, I'll give you an example of a, a couple examples of universal design. Um, it's regulation uh, in most uh, countries that um, public uh, access areas be accessible to people with um, wheelchairs, that they be able to roll up into a store and not have be confronted with stair steps. That there's an option for a ramp. Now, that may have initially been added or considered for that person uh, with disabilities, but that same ramp helps people who are pushing a baby stroller, or the same ramp helps for somebody using a dolly. You know, there or there's that concept is um, is helping everybody universally. The same thing applies for software. When you make something more accessible, I'm talking specifically about accessibility and the diverse needs there. But when you make software more accessible for people with low vision or with no vision, you also make it more accessible for everybody. Um, You even make it more accessible for search engines. And oftentimes, you know, at least historically, if you make a website more accessible, you're also going to help the search engine optimization. So this concept of universal design is really important. Um, there's many, many, many different facets of it. I've only just briefly touched on accessibility, but the concept applies um, pretty broadly to your question. One of the things that you know um, we are always challenged with is this collaboration between my design team and my engineering team where the designers are so sensitive to make sure that the design is brought to life in code exactly as they intended it and keeping all those talented people happy um is you know it's a day-to-day grind for me and you're in a comparable role, except instead of doing great marketing where you're doing amazing product design. How do you foster collaboration between your design and engineering teams to ensure a seamless integration of these security features into the overall user experience? Great question. Uh, you know, I'll say kind of jokingly, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. So ultimately, getting back to one of the first questions, you need to build this culture of design so that you have shared language, shared vocabulary, um, shared rituals, um, shared process. But uh, but some of the rituals that are important are um, ensuring that all the stakeholders are involved in the kickoff of work. And so... Um, making sure that you have the design team, the engineering team, the PM team, et cetera, all involved in the creation, let's say, of the, of the brief for the project so that they have input at that level. If everybody has understanding from day one, the trade-offs that we make later, oh, we can't change that button label. <laughs> we, on, this, uh, on this release, we have to change it in the next release. You know, that might infuriate a design team. It seems so simple. Change the button label. But if they understand the context and they're with that team from the beginning, 
they're probably more likely to understand all the different trade-offs and most likely would probably agree if they really know all the trade-offs that are involved. So I think it's really important that all the stakeholders are involved from the beginning. But there there are all kinds of different assets and sort of um, rituals around how sprints can be run, how design sprints can be run, how design can integrate with engineering sprints, um, different kind of kickoff formats that are cross-disciplinary. You know, the the main thing is just make it cross-disciplinary from the beginning. Great, great insights there. You know, one of the things that we are always encountering is, you know, I'll ask a CEO feedback on something and they'll say like, I hate that or I love that. And the question often next is, but you know, what is your, what do your users think? How would your users react? What would their feedback be if we did this? Like, I know Mr. CEO or Mrs. CEO, you like your, your fonts large, but you know, these black jean, black t-shirt guys that are using your product, they like their fonts at six point and they're on these massive screens. So thinking about your users is critical. My audience always is asking me that when I have guests on this show, they want to hear war stories of the guests come down to five feet instead of 50,000 feet. So here's the question. Can you share an instance where you got user feedback that significantly influenced a design iteration of one of your cybersecurity or identity products? Oh, man. Yes, many. <laughs> Would you like to hear about a one? Yes, please, please. <laughs> uh, perhaps I could share one from the FIDO Alliance. Uh, we were doing some very deep user experience research around pass keys. If you're not familiar with pass keys, are, you probably are. If you're not, you should look them up. Um, and the research was showing us something that nobody thought we would see. And when I say we, I mean, the UX researchers didn't think they would see it. The designers didn't think they would see it. I didn't think we'd see it. The um, security and engineering teams um, didn't think we would see it. And so we stopped the project. And this was, you know, once you get a big research project going like this, this is coordinating 120 plus people across 32 different companies within the FIDO Alliance. To stop a project's a big deal. And I, frankly, I made the call, I made the suggestion, we should stop the project. We should stop the project to better understand what's really going on and to really validate we're seeing the data correctly. And we did. We stopped the project and we ended up um, uh, conducting more interviews with brands who have already deployed pass keys to better understand and validate if what we were seeing in the UX research was accurate or not. And... Um, it was a very nerve-wracking time because we had a vendor on the clock. There's all sorts of schedule implications, lot you know, money that has been invested in different areas. Um, but something in this case, it turned out really well because 
we were able to validate what we were seeing was accurate. And it forced the entire organization to think about the solution to the problem in a different way that we just didn't consider before. Now, we finished that project, published the guide, you know, guidelines around PASCIs, et cetera. And what happened was it turned out to be very, very, very helpful for the broader global community to that we went through that process. We had to reframe how we look at PASCIs and um, then we're sharing that, um, that knowledge and kind of those success paths um, for their deployment with, um, with companies that they can use around the world. I, I don't know if that was down at the five foot level as opposed to 50,000, maybe it was more like the, uh, no, it's good. It was, really good. I've actually, it was cool that you brought up pass keys because I've actually in a lot of consumer products lately, like a lot of streaming products, you want to lock and unlock, um, constantly using pass keys. Um, which was a word I hadn't exactly seen much. Um, yes. And it's a lot, of Q, a lot of QR codes and, you know, your additional device. And I, I have found it just seamless and flawless. And uh, that technology, as well as augmented reality and virtual reality are all, you know, super exciting. Forget about AI one moment. One of the things I was curious about is with these emerging technologies like Passkeys, but let's focus on AR and VR. I'm sure a lot of my audience is curious, how do you envision the integration of the UI UX for cybersecurity solutions using AR and or VR? Uh, I will get to that. Can I, I would like to go back to the last question for a moment. Sure, sure. <laughs> passkeys. Let's talk passkeys. Well, yeah, passkeys, but I want to give one other example for the audience because maybe they experienced this and maybe they haven't. Excellent. When you're doing user experience research, which is a core discipline of, of design teams, you record those sessions and making a highlight reel of people using your product is a very, very, very powerful tool. So I make highlight reels all the time for our different work with Trisona or with Fido Alliance. And I've played those highlight reels for the board of, let's say, Fido Alliance. We have 44 board members from the biggest tech companies across the globe. And when they see end users using the technology for the very first time, that is very powerful. So you mentioned, you know, oh, the CEO says, hey, I want the font, you know, in 50 point, but the designer wants it in five point. You can have that argument all day long. Create a highlight reel, show where the friction is. Don't just, you know, talk about what you want to do, but show end users actually using the system. And that becomes a very powerful tool. That, that story really brings back one of the biggest moments in my career, which is thanks to Google, Stanley Black and Decker stumbled upon my website and they said, we're looking for a redesign of our number one website, DeWalt.com, the largest power tool in the world. Mm -hmm. And they said, we got the biggest digital agencies in the world going for this. But we just stumbled upon you in Google and we want kind of a dark horse, just this random agency that no one had heard of. 
Uh, this is a bunch of years ago. And we'd like you to pitch. And what we did was we did exactly what you were talking about. We we First, we had a lot of Miller Lite laid out for construction workers. And then we had the DeWalt website. And we had construction workers just using the site and just had that hidden camera recording all their frustrations and quote unquote user feedback. And we made a sizzle reel of all that feedback and cut it to ACDC back in black. And that was the pitch. And that pitch forever changed my entire career because we wound up beating Razorfish and Gray Worldwide and everyone for that just, you know, amazing project, about an 18-month design effort to redesign the global website for DeWalt. So that story as you were talking, telling it of these uh, capturing the users in video and showing it definitely uh, put the hair on the back of my neck up for a little bit. That was really, that was really cool. I love that. Um, can we jump over to AR and VR now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I still remember the question. So AR and VR, I mean, I don't want to sound jaded with this, but you know, as a, as a, designer or as a design leader, a design design executive, you've been at this for long enough to know that the tools come and go. The tools come and go, the delivery systems come and go, the technologies come and go, and it's always changing. So I'm not, I don't have any great big predictions about, um, you know, even about AI. I know you had asked about um, augmented reality, virtual reality. I think there's all kinds of applications for that. I haven't been involved with them directly so much, but I will tell tell you that over 30 years, I've seen technologies come and go. It's just part of the job description. You have to be up to date with what the tools are and what the delivery channels are and the delivery mechanisms are. And so... Um, you're constantly learning about what are the right tools and what are the right delivery systems. And as a wrap-up question to play right off of that, you know, looking at the future of passwordless, which is a space that you are quite intimate in, being a pioneer in password solutions, how do you foresee the future of authentication and its impact on user experience overall? Well, absolutely. What we've seen with authentication is um, we've had the same modality for 60 years. It's username and password, or let's just say password. There's been a lot of, there's been a lot of additions that have been bolted on that same expression. So username and password plus an OTP, SMS OTP, email OTP, um, maybe you have an authenticator app. The modalities largely vary. It's very much the same. You have a password and you have a second factor, but both can be phished. And most of the attacks are happening through phishing. So the the change that is here and is that is here today, but will continue to really further take root and lay people will begin talking about it more and more and more are pass keys because pass keys use private key cryptography because it's a fundamentally different approach to authentication than a username and password plus another fishable factor 
it is changing both the the security of that sign-in touch point on the user journey. And it's also changing the user experience. You know, people are now finally to use something other than a username and password to sign in. Now, a lot of big brands have already implemented passkeys. Google, um, it's the default now for your Gmail um, or when you create a new account with, uh, with Google or Gmail. Um, big brands like, I don't know, Best Buy, like uh, eBay, um, it, it, the very long list of companies Uber just released uh, recently support for passkeys. TikTok released support for passkeys. So you're seeing so many companies now supporting passkeys. That's just going to continue. And so there will be a point where um, not having passkeys will be um, kind of the minority um, out in the world across uh, websites and apps. And it's going to take us a few years to get there. So I don't know how far you wanted me to try to foresee in the future. I can't see that far, but I can certainly see the next two, three, five years. It's going to be a huge shift to passkeys. And um, it's already happening. That momentum is just tremendous. That's great. And it, it'll make life more convenient, more secure, and hopefully it'll bring the, the common person a little less worry. Um, Kevin, I wanted to thank you for being on Digital Doorways today and having such a material impact on our agency and our specifically our design team. Um, it's been great having you on the show and would love to have you on a future episode. I'd love that. Thanks so much, Jason. Excellent. Bye-bye.